Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Tracy Stanley. Tracy was introduced to the practice of yoga nidra in 2001. She immediately recognized it as a healing salve for the world and began to incorporate it into her life and her yoga teaching. She left her high-stress career as a Hollywood film producer to delve deeper into the study of the practices that were empowering and rejuvenating her so she could share them with others. With over 20 years of experience, practice, and teaching in the Himalayan tradition, Tantra and Sri Vidya, she also understands the demands of life as an entrepreneur, wife, and stepmom. Her effortless way of sharing ancient teachings in accessible ways is her superpower. She travels extensively to offer yoga nidra, meditation, self-inquiry, teacher trainings, and workshops. So hello, Tracy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Jacob. How are you? I'm glad we're finally getting to do this. Yes, I can't wait to chat with you about um, your beautiful book, which I've been spending the last couple of days diving into. The book is on yoga nidra. We'll talk a lot about that today. I believe it's about to be published or just has been published? It is coming out on March 9th, so about uh, four weeks from now. Is it available for pre-order on Amazon? It is. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, um, indie books. There's lots of independent booksellers. If you go to my website, you can get all the links for all the good places to get it. (laughs) All right, beautiful. Well, we'll share a little bit more about your website and all that towards the end of the episode. Um, But just so everybody knows, um, our conversation today will um, kind of circulate and orient around um, the topic of Tracy's book, which is the incredibly powerful um, and important practice, especially for right now, arguably, Yoga Nidra. So before we get into kind of the the fundamentals of Yoga Nidra and more specifically about the topics you explore in your book, Tracy, I just wanted to ask you kind of how you got into this and, and what led you to focus your study and your teaching on Yoga Nidra. Well, let's see. In 2001, I was going to a satsang with a, a new teacher that I hadn't practiced with before. Um, and at the end of the practice, he asked us to lay down and didn't really introduce the practice as deep relaxation or yoga nidra. And I really thought, oh, we're just going to do some sort of a guided shavasana. And the experience that I had from that one practice, just feeling this kind of sense of peace and calm that was coming from within me Mm. that felt like this vibration of truth, the truth of who I really was, was so powerful. And I didn't know the practice had a name that I just thought, well, wait a second, what just happened to me? Mm. (laughs) Something happened. I don't know what it was. It feels very profound And coming back from that, it also felt like there was a residue that stayed with me for quite some time after the practice was over and I had gotten into my car and had driven home, that I was still in this place of what I could only describe as being in a sublime state where everything seemed like it was perfect. (laughs) Mm. And so that led me to study with that teacher. Um, his name is Rod Stryker. And what he would do at the end of every class was that he was leading us in basically deep relaxation techniques. And so for me, I really felt like, oh, this is something that you're supposed to do at the end of yoga. When you lay down for Shavasana, someone guides you. Um, So it really was part of how once I started to study to become a teacher and become more interested in more than just kind of the physical yoga asana classes that I really thought was a part of how um, yoga was taught. And it wasn't until a few years later where I discovered one of the books that was out at the time about yoga nidra and I started to recognize the scripts and some of the directions. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get this book and I'll start to lead some of my students or people that are coming to my classes in this practice. Uh, And so I started to do that and I made some recordings and put them on iTunes in like 2004. 
And the response was really that, especially at that time in Los Angeles, everything was very asana based. Yeah. It was all about what kind of handstand can you hold in the middle of the room? What kind of drop back back bend can you get to? And not to say there's anything wrong with that, but that's, that's what it was. We were doing lots of arm balances and things like that. So to have this as a counterpoint for the classes that I was teaching, which were pretty rigorous classes, I started to just realize that people seemed to be getting much more benefit out of the rest and out of the deep relaxation and the yoga nidra practices than they were out of a lot of the more competitive-based almost asana class. Yeah, absolutely. I did a yoga and meditation class on Tuesday, Thursdays in Soho for a number of years. And I would cycle through different styles of meditation. And one of the ones was a kind of script that I would use of the yoga nidra practice. And I would always use the same script, but it was always the one that the students kind of took away as being the most powerful. I want to talk a little bit about kind of philosophically what's happening in yoga nidra from the yoga philosophical perspective and then also scientifically. Um, but before we talk a little bit about that, how do you describe kind of the distinction? Obviously, we can understand yoga nidra as a form of meditation. Um, but what do you think, you know, is there any utility in defining the difference between meditation and yoga nidra? Is there a difference in what is kind of accomplished or realized uh, through the yoga nidra practice by comparison with traditional forms of meditation or seated forms of meditation? As far as my understanding, um, because this is a question that comes up often, is that first of all, the state, we need to talk about the state of yoga nidra, mm -hmm. the state of consciousness that is yoga nidra, that is very similar, if not the same as the state of samadhi. Mm -hmm. And that we know that because of the eight limbs of yoga, that the state of meditation is just one of the rungs on the way towards samadhi, but not quite samadhi, right? So the way I think about it is that meditation is a practice that leads you to samadhi or towards samadhi and yoga nidra as it's defined in some of the texts is similar if not the same as yoga as as samadhi mm. so i think what we need to do in a way is kind of reframe how we speak about yoga nidra in some of the same ways in which we think about how we talk about yoga, like we'd say, oh, we're going to go do yoga, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's, and, and yoga is this pose or yoga is this thing, but we know that yoga actually means to yoke. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I would also say is that when we meditate for the most part, we're meditating with our spine vertical to the earth, which leaves us in a little bit of a rajasic state, mm. right? So well, maybe sattva, but definitely rajasic because there's an awakeness, there's an alertness that has to be there in order for you to hold your body in that position. And in yoga nidra, we're practicing with our spine parallel to the earth, which starts to allow us to move more into this place of tamas and inertia, and to bring in the good, good qualities of inertia to allow us to be in that restful place. So I think there's definitely a distinction for me personally and my own personal practice. And that's really all I can speak to yeah. is that the experiences that I have in yoga nidra are very different than the experiences that I have in meditation practice. But what I do know is that they feed each other. I know that my meditation practice is deeper because I practice yoga nidra. Mm. So it sounds like you're, you're suggesting, well, at least for you, that it's a both and rather than an either or. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that. And, um, and I also like your kind of, if I understand you correctly, your honesty about, you know, within the texts. Because, of course, we can get into, we love to have sort of well-defined categories between things and people want sort of like, well, what does it ultimately mean and where does it fit in the overall kind of, you know, taxonomy of yoga principles? And, you know, you're, you're pointing out that historically and across different texts, we see different kind of associations between 
for you know samadhi you're you know saying in some texts it's kind of considered synonymous with samadhi in other texts it's sort of um if i understand you correctly kind of uh, a preparatory stage on route to samadhi is is that correct yes and also a, a preparatory stage on route to turiya Mm-hmm. Right. So the what's known as the fourth. And and so that's the fourth state when we think about waking, dreaming, deep sleep. And Turiya is the fourth state. That is Yoga Nidra is like the step just before you get to Turiya. And because we can't define Turiya because Turiya is this place of no thought. It's a place that you may only recognize that you've been somewhere when you come back. Yeah. It's not a place that you can be there and say, oh, this is what it's like and this is what happened to me. So it really is a practice that I feel, at least for me, on the deepest levels, it's beyond any kind of description. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you point that out. I think that's, I mean, of course, we know that there are sort of different in the yoga sutras, there's like different stages of samadhi, some with seed, some without seed, but kind of the the highest stage of samadhi is one without any objects of consciousness which means there's no experience there because you have to have an object to experience it and and i think this is something that people get um confused about a lot so it's like like you're saying i'm glad you pointed that out that you only kind of know you were there almost from inference it's like the minutes i lost in you know it's like the i set the alarm and then it goes off seemingly like five seconds later when really it was a half hour and you kind of can infer from that that you, you know you were there Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I really loved about the book, which I feel like I haven't seen, well, first of all, I feel like there are very few kind of really thorough compendiums of Yoga Nidra and your book, what is really kind of beautiful about it is that there are so many supplemental practices and so much preparatory practice that you offer, you know, before you really lay out the the full kind of Yoga Nidra experience, which is just really beautiful. And, and maybe if we have some time um, at the end of the episode, I'll ask you to kind of lead us through one of those if you're open to it. But one of the things that I really liked was you referring to yoga nidra as a goddess and so Mm. i would love for you to talk a little bit about about that because i feel like that's going to be kind of a new idea for some people so where does that idea of yoga nidra as goddess come from and and how does that kind of play into or can inform or support or nourish um the practice of yoga nidra Mm, i'm so glad you asked that question because it was new to me the first time i heard it (laughs) And I had been chanting um, the Devi Suktam and had heard the verse, Ya Devi Sarvabhuteshu Nidra Rupena Samstita. I had heard that. And because I didn't have the, the depth of understanding, I was thinking that they were referring to the practice, the technique. And so it was a teacher by the name of Sri Devi Bringi that I was studying with. And she was the one who told us about the goddess Yoga Nidra and how she is spoken about in the text, the Devi Mahatma, which is part of the Markandeya Purana. And that she is the goddess who takes her seat in Vishnu, when Vishnu is in this deep, deep sleep between the kalpas, which is like this transition of time between creation and recreation. And at that time, he's sleeping for thousands and thousands of years, and he has this stem of a lotus that is growing out of his navel that Brahma is sitting on and meditating. And you know how it is when you're sleeping for a long time, you have sleep that gets into your eyes and you know, fluids that might come out, ama. And so these two little demons are kind of born out of his earwax and they start attacking Brahma. And Brahma is trying to wake up Vishnu because he is the preserver and the protector and he can't wake him up. And he realizes that he has to call upon the goddess, the goddess who has the power of sleep to be able to wake up Vishnu and allow him to destroy these demons. And he starts to sing the praises of Yoga Nidra. So the, the, the form of the divine mother as sleep. 
And so if we think about that, to me, at least for me, it was a complete reframe of what is happening in the practice and who and what I am surrendering to and how I can be nurtured. And so my practice of yoga nidra, meaning the technique, me doing the technique of yoga nidra, became much more of a ritual, much more of a devotional practice to that power, which Uma Dinsmir Tuli refers to as nidra shakti, the power of repose, the power of sleep, that is this feminine quality of being held, of the great mother coming and holding and nourishing you unconditionally. Well, that's truly beautiful. I have sort of in my own sadhana and the trajectory of my study become much more comfortable with deity and the the importance of and the role of, of deity in my own practice. But I think there's a lot of people who are practitioners who still, that's sort of the sticking point for a lot of people, right? It's the, we have a lot of baggage from a certain kind of Judeo-Christian socialization. And so we kind of go to some of these um, philosophies and traditions because we think they offer sort of, you know, this non-dual, absolute consciousness, everything is vibration sort of um, experience where you know, the iconography, the importance of the role or centrality of, of deity seems to be kind of less focused on as it does in, you know, perhaps monotheistic traditions. Where does that land for you? Like, is it, is it a pragmatic thing? Is it really, uh, like, do you fully feel yourself in relationship to a personified deity? What is your kind of relationship with that, you know, experience? Well, I feel her everywhere. Hmm. And one of the biggest places where I feel her is in nature. Yeah. So for me, while I can definitely identify with a personified deity, it's really more of an essence, mm -hmm. right? It's like ultimately this path of yoga nidra is also this path of dying. Mm of dying, you know, to the world of name and form and to waking up to that which is eternal. And we see death and rebirth all the time in nature if we're really looking. So, you know, I think that I see her in many different ways and many different places without it looking the same all the time. Yeah, I love that. That's such a like great sort of non-dogmatic way of expressing her status as a goddess and the relationship with nature. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the basics of what, um, you know, is included in a yoga nidra practice for those that aren't familiar? All the traditions and lineages have different stages and different ways in which they teach. But for the most part, the commonality between them all is that yoga nidra is taught in a supine position, either lying down or in a position that feels comfortable for the practitioner where the body is fully supported. So that could mean for one person, you know, sitting in a chair or reclined in a chair um, or side lying if you're pregnant. But the idea is, is that the body is fully supported. And then you are generally, if you're being guided in yoga nidra, you're being guided through a form of systematic relaxation, some breath awareness so that you can start to move into the parasympathetic nervous system and allow the body to begin to relax. Um, and then at the same time, there's some traditions that might have certain visualizations or mantras and those even though we relate them to, oh, this is yoga nidra practice, the yoga nidra for me doesn't really begin until the guide stops talking. Because it's a state of nirvikalpa. It's a state of no thought. It's a practice of, as my friend John Vassar likes to say, it's a practice of subtraction. 
So ultimately what we're doing is we're following, we're, we're allowing ourselves to become sensitive to prana, to our subtle body, and then we're following prana back to its source. And then we're resting in spacious awareness. Mm. I want to do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> you go into beautiful detail in the book about you know the status of kind of our wound up culture um and so it's not going to be any news to anybody that that we're all stressed <laughs> out but can you talk a little bit about you know why i mean it feels almost like yoga nidra which does seem to be increasing in popularity has mm -hmm. come at all too perfect a time um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of what the obstacles of, to rest are in our culture and kind of what what we're facing on sort of a social level and and why, you know, yoga nidra is so important in respect to that? The first thing is where our society has conditioned us to do, 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 and that our value is in the doing. So if you are resting you're either lazy, lazy mm -hmm. or worthless because you have nothing to do. <laughs> that's, that's basically it. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember having a, a few friends who one of the things they would do, they would call and they would say, what are you doing today? And it was like, if you didn't have this litany of things that you were doing today, it was almost a competition of, well, here's what I'm doing. So let's like compare who's busier, who has more important things to do, because that's where our value lies. Mm -hmm. And there's something wrong with you if you want to welcome in rest. And I think that over this time of the pandemic that we've been in for over a year or almost a year, once things really did slow down because we were forced basically into a global sadhana of being still and being uncertain, a lot of us got to realize how exhausted we actually were. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us, I think, also got to realize how much more uh, work, if we were lucky enough to be at home working, we were able to do without the same kind of running in a, you know, one of those circular rat cages that the more we, we rested, the more we were clear. This culture doesn't really, I mean, it's starting to shift. I'm starting to see messages about rest more in the mainstream, but I think that, um, everything so far that I've seen up until recently has been about how much can you, how much more can you get out of a work day? How can you hack sleep so that you can only sleep three hours a day and still be productive? You know, and, and I definitely know that from personal experience, I had a job where my literal job title was creative producer. <laughs> you know, and I took great pride in the fact of telling people, oh, I'm a producer. That's what I do. I have, you know, and then I would start to see that some of the people that I worked with would want to pile up more projects than the company could actually do because they wanted to have on the list that there were 25 projects happening. So when people would come into the office and we would have meetings and we would read off the list of things, it would be like, well, how is it possible that you, such a small company could be doing these, all these projects. And I feel like that was just a symptom of our culture. It seems like there's something behind that, right? Because I feel like even in my work, um, I struggle with boundaries and I'm definitely, you know, I live in New York. I, I'm obsessed with to-do lists. I love the uh, the kind of uh, dopamine boost that I get when I tick something off of my list. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but but then also when you're you know and I imagine it sounds like it was similar in your work environment. There's 
it, un, unless you work in a in a place where it's a ve- there's a very clear kind of outline of monthly responsibilities, and if you are sort of a create if if your if your work environment is based on kind of creative production in some way, then you know it's like if you stop producing, there's this fear behind there that something terrible is going to happen. Right? That seems to be kind of at least for me, maybe I'm just talking about my own personal experience (laughs) (laughs) that there's this like, that if I, if, if if I don't keep producing, then something's Mm going to kind of fall apart. Right. Right. Well, if, if I don't keep producing, then that leaves the door open for the other person in the next office who is producing to outproduce me. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I'm lucky that I had these practices while I was in the industry and at some point, I remember um, one of my bosses, uh, I was walking from my office to like the break room. And he said, you know, why do you seem so calm? Why aren't you like running around like a chicken with your head cut off like everyone else in the office that's juggling all these different plates? And I was like, huh. I said, you know, a court jester juggles plates. I'm not interested in being like running around like a crazy court jester. I'm rested, I'm relaxed, and I'm clear. And I can take my 12 projects that I happen to have, and I can do them in a way that's really productive, that isn't about chaos, and isn't about fear. And yet what you're doing as the boss is you're trying to actually instill fear in me, because the way that I am receiving uh, the responsibility of these 12 projects is not the way you want it to look. Mm-hmm. So because it's not the way you want it to look like I'm running around like a crazy person, it means that I have less value. Yeah. Whereas you could have flipped that and said, what is it that you're doing that you're able to do these projects and stay so balanced? So when did you have enough of that then? When did you decide to, you know, if you were, if you were, you know, able to kind of keep it calm throughout that, when did you decide that it was sort of enough was enough and you needed to cut the cord? Well, that was the moment Mm. that, that was the literal moment because it came from an unexpected source that I was not expecting to hear that. And I thought, no, there's another way to do this and I can do it on my own. And when I do it on my own with other people who are like-minded, then we can get things done and done in a way where it's not about the ego, uh, because this is yet another situation of having to have a certain number of projects to look a certain way. And, you know, the other thing that I also want to just touch on um, that shouldn't be looked over that circles back to your original question is about the obstacles is that for some of us, it is not safe to rest. Yeah, yeah. You know, the world has shown us that it is either not safe, and if you're in a black or brown or trans body, it's not safe for you to let your guard down enough. I mean, if we go back just a few hundred years, if you were resting, let's say, on the plantation as an enslaved person, mm-hmm your life was in jeopardy. Yeah. Your family's life might have been in jeopardy. So this is in the DNA of many people, whether it's um, ancestral trauma, and that can be from any background that we carry, the messages that we get from our parents, you know, the guilt that we feel. There's so many different reasons why it's not safe for us to rest. And it doesn't feel safe, I should say, for us to rest. Yeah. Trauma from this lifetime. Yeah, I I wanted to ask you about that, because that's one of the things I really appreciated about the book was the sensitivity towards contraindications regarding trauma, and other, you know, obstacles, um, like you're talking about, you don't segue into, well, that means rest isn't for you, right? You have, you know, kind of further thoughts on on what might be helpful as a way to segue towards being, you know, moving towards rest or, or, you know, different ways of holding the body that might feel safer. So can you talk about a little, a little bit about that, about kind of 
I don't know, supplemental or supportive considerations that that help in some of these contraindicated experiences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing that I would say is that being able to deeply relax and to experience this deep, deep, dreamless sleep that is spiritually transformative is all of our birthrights. Mm -hmm. So whatever we can do um, to allow us to be in a, in a sacred space that invites us to rest as much as we can is really important. And if that means, you know, leaning up against the wall with your legs crossed, facing the door with your eyes slightly open or fully open while you listen to the practice, that's perfect. Hmm. You know, um, if that means practicing with another person that you trust in the room or a pet that you trust in the room, that's perfect. So I know, at least for me, when I first started practicing yoga, the way the teacher set up the person in the front of the room or did the demonstration always seemed to be the one and only way to do it. Yeah. And so if you didn't look like the perfect triangle pose, something was wrong with you. Mm-hmm. I really want people to know that there's suggestions in the book, but you may have your own thing that you're like, you know what, this would feel really good for me if I could just do this in this position with my eyes open, maybe with even music, because that makes me feel better. I know um, one of the things that people seem to be really responding to lately, especially since the pandemic, is a practice that I learned many years ago where, where we just create these kind of three circles of protection around the body. And it's just a simple visualization. But that feels as though it allows people to move into um, kind of their own sacred abode and to feel that they're protected by their ancestors, by benevolent beings, by their spirit guides, by their deities, by the lineage holders of their traditions. And you just kind of create these circles and visualize that there's this protection around you. I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that that, that really allows them to feel like they can experience the practice in a deeper way. I was I was kind of surprised that um, sitting up against the wall is is as an ex, is kind of a, a way of doing the practice that helps for people that have experienced trauma. Is is that is is that partly because kind of lying down in the center of the room can feel more vulnerable and almost like there's a threat coming from all sides? Is that is that part of what it is? Is or is it just more that you know you know research has noticed that this particular way of of holding the body is helpful in the, in that particular instance. You know, if you have experienced trauma while you've been sleeping, lying down, then laying down is very vulnerable. Right. It can also be very triggering, especially, you know, now we won't have maybe as much of that, but if you're in a room full of people yeah, and you're being asked to lay down and close your eyes, that can feel very uncomfortable. And so one of the things that I think is really helpful for people, especially if they're in a live class, is to really go up to the teacher and say, I need to find a space that feels safe for me. So that may be moving outside of the circle or outside of the lines of people that are lined up and finding a corner of the room that feels like your own space where you don't have to be next to another person. And so when you're laying against the wall or leaning against the wall, facing the door, it allows you to be aware of your surroundings of who and what is coming in the door. And it also allows you not to be in a vulnerable position because your legs can be crossed and you're sitting up. Mm. It just feels much safer. And by the way, we teach this when we do our yoga nidra training it's actually the first posture that we teach to the students so that they can feel it in their own body 
What does it feel like? How can you receive the practice? And many times, a lot of the um, students, that becomes their preferred way of practicing yoga nidra. I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the science of, of yoga nidra. You've, you've kind of referenced the parasympathetic nervous system. You also, in your book, talk a bit about brain waves, alpha, delta, and theta. <laughs> so can you talk about um, the, you know, kind of how these these brain waves relate to the experiences of yoga nidra and why this is sort of, this contributes to the restfulness that we experience? Mm. Yeah. So just like quickly on, on the brain waves, the beta waves are more active when our body or our awareness is in the external. So if we're reading a book or we're attending a lecture or we're listening to a podcast, we're going to be in beta. The moment you start to close your eyes and your attention is directed inward, so doing things like maybe yoga or meditation or mindful presence, you're starting to move into an alpha state. But there's still you're still conscious of your surroundings. You you know where you are, you you're listening to the guidance of your meditation teacher or guide. And then the theta waves are when you start to move into deep, deep relaxation and deep meditation. So when people have done research, this is something that's expected is to see that meditators and people in yoga nidra would be going into this very deep, relaxed state of theta. It wasn't until around the 70s, actually, I think it was very early 70s, when two researchers at the Menager Institute had heard stories about these yogis and other people who could do things that really were like stopping voluntary functions in the body, like blood pressure, heart beating, putting yourself into a deep, deep dreamless sleep and still being conscious of your surroundings, that we started to understand that yoga nidra practitioners often could reach the state of delta, which really meant that your external awareness had been completely suspended. And a lot of times if somebody is in an accident, like a terrible accident, God forbid, you might be put into a drug-induced coma. And the reason they do that is that because your body is able to kind of turn the mind off where we lose a lot of energy and a lot of our healing potential because we're thinking, and it allows you to move more into a theta and delta state where healing can be activated. So, you know, some of these experiments were done. One in particular that's widely reported about was Swami Rama um, being uh, hooked up to the EEG and putting himself into this state where they measured his delta brain waves. And when they measured the delta brain waves and the experiment was over, he recounted to them the conversation that they were having while he was supposedly in a deep dreamless sleep. Similarly, that same experiment was trying to be replicated at the Center for Noetic Sciences like 20 years later. And while they were hooking up Swami Veda Bharati to the EEG and he was having a conversation with the scientist, the technician was like, whoa, 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 he's already in Delta and he's having a full conversation. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, you know, you think about this and when I spoke to Dr. Dean Radin about it, he said that his assumption was that Swami Veda had spent so much time in this state of yoga nidra, because if you read about his story, you'll learn that he was basically practicing yoga nidra since he was an eight-year-old kid, that that was his baseline. Wow. And we're talking like Delta is a, the rarest brainwave, is, if I understand correctly. It I, I, that's a good question because I think there's other brainwaves like gamma that they don't know too much about now. But this is the this is the place of deep, deep, dreamless sleep. It's the place where the body rejuvenates, the brain gets revitalized, the immune system gets strengthened, 
and it is not a place that you should be talking <laughs> and having a full conversation. It's a place where you should be in that deep, deep state where you've had such a deep sleep that you don't remember what happened in the sleep, but you know that you had a deep sleep when you wake up, not too dissimilar to that experience in yoga where you go somewhere and you don't know where you went and you can't explain it. Yeah. Well, I imagine if, if you are speaking and you're in a Delta state, like what was the Swami's name? Swami Veda Bharati. Swami Veda Bharati. I imagine what came out of his mouth was wise. <laughs> oh, I mean, he, he was incredible. Like you would sit with him and immediately it was like you were dropping into this deeper state of meditation just by being in his presence. Wow. That's amazing. So there is also, uh, you know, you meant you talk about the the creativity that can arise. I really enjoyed the part the part of the book where you um, mention how Einstein and who is the other um, the other guy? I'm forgetting. Yeah, Einstein and and uh, Franklin. Franklin, um, how they put like metal bearings in their hands and then. You know, so if they when they fall asleep, they would drop the metal bearings, it would land on kind of a metal plate and wake them up, which, you know, really resonated with me because I've I often people are always like, how can you take five minute naps? And I mm -hmm. truly I stand by like even just falling into consciousness and waking up is a mm -hmm. huge boost for like creativity and and just like inspiration to continue about my day and the things I have to do. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the relationship between this in between this interstitial space and creativity? It's almost like you're moving into this space of the liminal. Hmm. It's that hypnagogic place between waking and sleeping that there's visions that might come, there's hallucinations that might come. And part of yoga nidra is really being able to maintain awareness through that stage. So in yoga nidra, a lot of times you'll hear people say, uh, it's like sleep with a slight trace of awareness. That awareness is the thing that moves through all the transitions, the transition between waking and dreaming dreaming and sleeping, and then sleeping and coming back to wakefulness, as well as through the brainwave states. There's, there's a level of this part of you that is always watching and is always awake, and we become more and more in touch with that. And I really feel like when we are in touch with that, we're moving through these transitional voids. And so Nidra, one of the etymologies of the word is that ni refers to the void and drew refers to this idea of drawing forth. So if we think about what is it that we're drawing forth from this fertile void, the void is said to be both full and empty, but this is a place of full potentiality and infinite wisdom. And so I feel like when we touch that place and we're aware, we can bring back with us a lot of clarity and creativity that is not always accessible when we're in the thinking place. Because when you drop into that void, when you drop into the liminal, the mind starts to shut off. It's been a very important practice for me and even in writing the book. I imagine, you know, the practice itself is sort of helped to kind of birth the creative project of the book. Absolutely. So my, my writing room was mostly my yoga nidra nest, my harmonium and my writing desk. And I would go from place to place. So if I, you know, there were certain things where if I was doing research, I was at my desk because that required me to be like focused. And when I was in that place of just downloading the practices that I felt were going to be most helpful, or if I didn't know which direction to go in next, I would lie down, practice Nidra come from my nidra and savor that liminal space and while I was free writing. Mm. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, you know, reading through your book, you can definitely feel it just it's very obvious to me, you know, having read so many books for, you know, this podcast. And obviously, there's a range of books that I read from kind of scholarly to more popular. And you can always tell the books that come from a deeply nourished place of practice. Like it's just, it's, it's palpable and Mm. it really does kind of scintillate and resonate off the text itself. And, and your, and your book is definitely an example of that. So thank you. Yeah. Um, so to wrap it up, I think, um, we didn't quite get to a, a, a lead practice, but we'll talk about maybe where people can find a lead practice with you at the end. But to close, I'm wondering if, you know, since you started talking about the Nidra nest and um, and kind of the supportive environment, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about for those that are like, okay, I'm compelled. I, I feel like this is what I need. Deep rest. This practice sounds amazing. Um, what are some steps that uh, the listeners can take to build, uh, you know, set up an environment for this practice and also get ready to kind of engage it deeply? Is there anything specific in terms of supportive practices or props or anything else that you would ad- advise or suggest? Yeah, so so one of the the things that I, I love to give people is if you're not already familiar with Nezia oil, so this, this oil, Ayurvedic oil that you place in the nose that just helps to sensitize those nerves in the nose as you're breathing, because obviously we have to, we want a clear pathway. So you might want to do a neti maybe an hour prior and then do some nausea oil. You might even want to do an abhyanga with some very grounding oil um, on the body before going into your nest. But when you're setting up your yoga nidra nest, one of the most important things is to set your nest up as though you're setting it up for your most beloved. Hmm. Because we have a tendency to skimp. We have a tendency to let the feelings of unworthiness and undeserving to translate into our practice. And so if we think about what do I need to really be supported, which parts of my body when I'm laying in Chavasana always start to ache just a little bit or to get uncomfortable or to get really heavy. And think about where those places are and what you might need to support that, whether it's a bolster underneath the knees or if it's the extra padding of a folded blanket on top of your yoga mat, or if it's a rolled up blanket underneath your Achilles, or a cervical pillow underneath your head, or even a weighted blanket. Hmm. So it requires a little bit of experimentation and gifting yourself this beautiful practice by laying down for let's say two minutes and just feeling into your nest and as you scan through the body you're going to feel oh wait a second if i just had one more pillow or you know what this eye pillow is too heavy let me just go ahead and put a scarf over my eyes and just go through until you feel completely comfortable because the body needs to release. At the end of the day, the body is allowed to fall asleep in yoga nidra. The mind is allowed to fall asleep in yoga nidra. It's the consciousness that remains awake and aware. And so our nest is almost like the physical manifestation of that goddess yoga nidra, or if you wanna think about the goddess as the earth itself, that's there to hold you. So when you breathe in that goddess, that earth underneath you is rising up to hold your body. And when you exhale, it releases and surrenders into that hold. And there's nothing that the body needs to be able to let go. Hmm. 
I feel like this is the perfect moment to invite everyone to segue into a practice. You're just like, setting the stage so beautifully. Um, wow, that's really incredible and powerful. And it's been such a joy to talk to you about your book, which is Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity. So Tracy, we mentioned at the beginning, maybe some places where people can find about where they can purchase your book. You mentioned that it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Do you want to share any websites or any events or anything else that's coming up for you that you'd like the listeners to be aware of? Yeah. So um, one of the things I should mention is that there's a 30% coupon actually from Shambhala that they're offering. Um, it's RR30 and you can get 30% off of the book. So that's a great place to go and, and, and get it. Um, I have a five day experience of deep relaxation that is on commune. Um, so you can check that out. And things that are coming up, I have a few events um, that are coming up uh, around the book launch that you can find on my website, which is tracyyoga.com, Tracy with two E's, and the summer cohort for the Yoga Nidra teacher training. Um, we're taking applications for that now. I have all sorts of things always popping up. Uh, so the website is the best place to, to find everything. So Tracy with two E's, yoga.com. Excellent. And I'm, I'm, I love hearing that you're um, working with Commune. Uh, Skylar was one of my longtime teachers here in New York before she moved to L.A. Uh, yeah, she's wonderful. She is great. She's a little firecracker. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Tracy. It's been such a joy to talk to you today. Please, everyone who's listening, I've been speaking with Tracy Stanley, and she is the author of Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity. Highly, highly recommend this book. So go ahead and check out Tracy's website or head to Amazon for to pre-order your copy. I, I believe Tracy said, you said it was published at the beginning of March. Is that correct? Yeah, um, March 9th. All right, March 9th. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you. I appreciate you.